Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And a few weeks ago, we entered into chapter 13. And as we did, we entered into the very day of Jesus' crucifixion, which is going to take place at 9 o'clock the following morning. The evening began in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, where Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Feast of Passover together. During the feast, he dropped a bombshell revelation on them that one of them in that very room would betray him. Of course, this turned that room into pandemonium as they were all buzzing among themselves who would do such a horrible thing. As we said, John was reclining right in front of the Lord Jesus, but Judas right behind him. And all Judas had to do was lean forward, and he did and asked, Lord or Rabbi, is it me? And Jesus said, you know it's you. What you do, do quickly. So Judas quickly got up and left the room. After Judas left the room, Jesus proceeded to give to his 11 disciples that were remaining and all the Christian church, really, a new feast to celebrate under the old, or excuse me, in connection with the new covenant. A new feast to celebrate in connection with the new covenant. Um, The memorial meal that God gave to Israel to celebrate under the old covenant, the Old Testament period, was the feast of Passover, which they were observing at that very time. You can read about that in Leviticus 23, verse 5. God commanded they observe the Passover from year to year. And the Passover commemorated how God had used the blood of the Lamb, which they applied to the doorposts and lintels of their houses by faith. And when they did, it caused the judgment of God to pass over that house, and the firstborn did not die. The firstborn did not die. The firstborn of Egypt. This in turn allowed God, then, because Pharaoh, that was it. He was broken. He said, go, go. Ten plagues, last plague, death of the firstborn. He had hardened his heart the whole way. Now he says, that's it, we can't take any more. Your people can go. And so God used that final plague especially to break Pharaoh's stubbornness, his resistance, and uh, allowed God's people then to leave, and God led them out by the hand of a deliverer, Moses, and uh, took them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, a type of water baptism out into the wilderness where they eventually went into the promised land. But now they were the the free people of God, no longer in bondage in Egypt to to Pharaoh. They were now a redeemed people, the people of God under the old covenant. Now we are at that very evening, Jesus is instituting the new covenant, the new covenant. And the, the memorial meal for the new covenant that we celebrate is known as the Lord's Supper or communion, either way. When Christians celebrate communion together, it reminds us of, of Jesus' death on Calvary's cross and how his blood, when applied not, not to our houses, but to our hearts by faith, causes the judgment of God to pass over us, the judgment of God upon the firstborn. Understand this. The Bible says that everybody born in this world physically, everyone, is born of Adam. We're all Adam's descendants when we were born into this world, right? That's what the Bible calls being firstborn. 
of Adam, right? In Adam all die. The curse that God pronounced on Adam and his family, all of his descendants in the Garden of Eden, well, when we were born physically, that curse, that wrath of God abided on all of us, right? We were all the firstborn of Egypt. Egypt in Scripture is the type of the world. The firstborn of Egypt is the type of all the descendants of Adam who were born into this world physically. But you see, when we applied the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, to our lives, and a miracle, a miracle took place, right? It allowed us to become born again, John 3, or second born in Christ. Firstborn Adam, physical birth, all die. The new birth in Christ, the born a second time in Christ, well, that allows God's judgment to pass over us. Why? How? Because we actually change families. We're no longer the family of Adam. Oh, sure, we're still human beings. But as God sees us, we are no longer the family of Adam, a cursed family. In Adam all die. No, once we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our hearts by faith, it allows God to give us a new birth, and we are born into the family of God. We are now have now been led out of Egypt and out of the control of Pharaoh, in other words, the world and Satan. And now we are the redeemed people of God. And to celebrate that, that newness, that freedom, right? Sin no longer has a hold on us. We still sin, but really technically we are no longer the slaves of sin. And so we are born again or second born in Christ, free people. No longer the wrath of God abiding on us as the family of Adam. Now the blessings of God abiding on us as the family of God. There's a lot to celebrate that night. That's where the Lord Jesus said earlier in his ministry, with fervent desire, I've desired to keep this Passover with you. Because during the Passover, he was going to institute a new memorial meal to celebrate a new covenant, which the next day he was going to give his life to put in, to, to ratify. The word covenant in Hebrew literally means to cut. It's a blood covenant. And that next day, Jesus would ratify this covenant through his own blood. A lot to celebrate, a lot to celebrate. Now, after Judas left the room that night and Jesus instituted communion with his remaining disciples, he continues to teach them. This teaching started in chapter 13. It goes all the way, really, through chapter 17. We'll talk about how they leave the room at one point, and he continues to teach them as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem towards the eastern gate where they will cross over the Kidron Valley, and he will spend the remainder of the night at the, in, the Mount of, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested and, uh, and uh, taken to stand two trials the next morning uh, and would be on the cross by 9 a.m. But um, uh, when, um, uh, when, when, they, um, when Judas left the room, Jesus uh, instituted communion, and then he continued to teach them. He began to teach or continued to teach them important truths they needed to learn about the new covenant. This is a whole different thing, uh, okay? Uh, a new covenant. He needed to teach them about what that meant, what it meant to be members of the kingdom of God. They had lived under the kingdom of man for many years, but now they would be living under the kingdom of God because it would be coming inwardly, not outwardly. Uh, Jesus would be rejected by, uh, he was rejected the week earlier on Palm Sunday, so the kingdom wouldn't be coming outwardly. It would have if they had received him as their king, the nation, the leaders. 
But he talked about the mystery form of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, to all who would receive him as king into their heart, he would come in and the kingdom would come in and all the things that the kingdom will someday be outwardly, the peace, the love, the joy, would come inward and we would be members of the kingdom. It would be in our hearts until Jesus came a second time and established it openly and politically throughout the world. So he's got a lot to teach them. And during his earthly ministry, he had repeatedly taught them that in the kingdom of God, servanthood was the greatest virtue. And now he's going to teach them that a new commandment would be the kingdom's greatest law. So let's read verses 33 to 35. Where Jesus said, little children, I shall be with you a little, a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, let me stop and say that the new commandment of the new covenant that Jesus gave to his disciples that night, which applies to all of us who are members of his kingdom, wasn't simply to love people. I mean, there's nothing new about that. I mean, in the Old Testament, God had told his people in numerous places that they were to love people, not the least of which Leviticus 19, verse 18, where he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this was nothing new. He's not saying like, you know, I never told you this before, but you got to start loving each other. No, uh, that was something that uh, God had told his people in the old covenant they were to do. The word new there in the Greek, I give you a new commandment, uh, doesn't mean new in time. Again, they had been commanded to love uh, others in the Old Testament period long before Jesus was incarnated upon the earth. But this Greek word, a new commandment, uh, this Greek word for new means new in experience or fresh. You see, this command for Jesus' disciples to love one another was new because, listen, it was built on a new principle and energized by a new power. First of all, it was built on a new principle. Again, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, listen, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In the Old Testament, God had commanded his people to love others as they love themselves. What makes this command new is that Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other as I have loved you, he told them. How did Jesus love them? How did Jesus love all of us? By going to the cross and dying for us. That's how he wants us to love one another, by going to the cross and dying for people. Not literally, figuratively, dying to self, dying to our desires to put their desires, their needs above our own. That's, what, that's what's new about his command to love under the new covenant. And again, yes, guys, the Old Testament is filled with commandments and exhortations to love, but Jesus here makes everything new when he says, Love one another as I have loved you, or in other words, love others more than or above yourselves. Paul would pick up on this and write in Philippians 2, verse 3, esteem others as more important than yourselves, which means you have to love them more than you love yourself. 
And that's how unbelievers will know that you are children of God. He would go on to say in verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples. The world he's talking about. Unbelievers. This one feature, guys, this one characteristic above everything else that we as Christians model for the world in the way of virtue or, or blessings like peace and joy, of everything that would communicate to a fallen world that we're different, that we are really the children of God, not just churchgoers. A lot of churchgoers don't know Jesus. But we're talking about people who have been transformed on the inside, our new creations now in Christ. Jesus said, by this one defining quality, the world is going to know you belong to me, that you're my children, that you love one another. Look, loving people as you love yourself, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant love. Not bad. It's good stuff, right? But it was the kind of love they were used to under the Old Covenant. When you talk about loving people as you love yourself, what you're doing is you're placing yourself or placing them on an evil, equal, not evil, equal footing with yourself. Right? You're elevating them to a place where you're just as concerned about their needs as you are about your own. But loving them as Jesus loved us means to place them above yourself. Again, by dying to your needs and making their needs supreme. And guys, this is the greatest kind of love there is. The love of God, sacrificial love, which is manifested hopefully in the lives of God's people. If we're walking in the Spirit and abiding in Christ, it will be. Turn to John 15, because Jesus expands a little bit on this idea. Now, in the upper room, he said, a new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34. By this time, they've left the upper room. They're making their way through the streets of Jerusalem. He continues to teach them. And here in John 15, he is expanding a little bit on what he had told them in the upper room about this new kind of love. He said, this is my commandment. Verse 12, I'm sorry, John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Listen, greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, guys, at this point in the discussion, it's critical that we understand, and I know most of you do, maybe all of you, I'm not, but we need to repeat it. At this point in the discussion, it's critical that we understand that God's love is not a feeling. I'm not saying feelings don't accompany God's love. But that's really not in itself what God's love is. God's love is not a feeling. It is selfless action towards others in need. One of the greatest verses on this very subject, one that you've, most of you have memorized, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? The word there is agape. God so loved, we'll talk about agape love in just a second. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. So God up in heaven saw our plight, 
He saw because of Adam's sin, we were all fallen sinners now, uh, doomed to spend eternity in hell. And he didn't just look down from heaven and say, hey, Gabriel, I feel badly for them. But <laughs> what are you going to do? They blew it. Let's go to the other side of the galaxy and we'll try it again. No, he didn't say that. He so loved us that he acted. He came down on a search and rescue mission. I have come to seek and to save those that are lost. Luke 19.10. That was Jesus' whole ministry. This is a very special love. And this kind of love is the most powerful thing. I'm convinced agape love is the most powerful force in the universe. It was agape love that caused God to become a man and die for us. It's agape love that can change this world. Agape love is not a gift of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and they're different. Gifts are given and can be used immediately. You could be saved for two minutes, and God could give you the gift of prophecy, and you're prophesying. You're two minutes old in the Lord. You don't grow into the gifts. They're given and can be used immediately. But love, agape love, is a fruit of the Spirit, and that is grown over time as you walk with Jesus and as you're in the Word of God and so on. And I'm convinced that there is no more powerful force in the universe, I'll talk about that more in a second, than God's agape love. The sad thing, the tragedy is, so many churches elevate the gifts above all else. I hope you realize, as Paul was finishing up 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on the gifts, as he transitions into chapter 13, he begins with the words after he's talking about all these gifts, but I show you a more excellent way. And then he talks about God's love. And Paul is telling us in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that God's love, agape love, is greater than any of the gifts, is greater than speaking of tongues, in tongues, is greater than healing the, the sick. It's even greater than raising the dead because all those things only affect this life. But when we manifest God's agape love to the people of this world, it can change lives for eternity. It can rescue them from eternal judgment and hell and translate them into the kingdom of light and life. There is nothing I believe more powerful in the universe to soften our heart. The gifts, they're, they're, they're neat, right? I mean, churches that are built on the gifts of the Spirit, it's a lot of energy, a lot of emotion, right? I mean, and people are jumping off the pews and doing backflips and, and all of this, you know, the gifts of the Spirit. They, and, and, and they just put so much emphasis on that. And there is quite a bit of emotion to see somebody get healed physically. But that wears off. It, the, the emotion doesn't last. But when agape love is in a church, and people come into that church, and they experience God's agape love flowing through the lives of his people, it can soften the hardest heart, can break the hardest sinner, and bring them to their knees. I'm not saying immediately. It may take a while. But eventually... Bring them to Christ. I, I've heard numerous stories over the years. I'll share a couple with you. I think I shared this first one. 
took place during World War II when the Nazis had targeted one family. I think they were a, a Christian family, and they found out, and they were they had sent their uh, the uh, some some uh, police there uh, to uh, arrest these people. They were going to execute them. And when they started breaking down the door, a little eight-year-old girl uh, hid under the bed, and she escaped. And they eventually took all her family out into the yard and, and gunned them down in cold blood, killed every one of them. Well, before they left the house, she looked out under the bed and saw the face of one of the leading, the, the leading soldiers. And she never forgot that face. After the war was over and a lot of these Nazis were brought to trial, this one guy's... Uh, picture was in the newspapers he was on trial and she recognized he was the guy who had led the thing to gun down her whole family he was convicted and sent to prison and she started writing him telling him he was, she was a christian and that she forgave him that she explained that i was under the bed the, the the day you burst in with your soldiers and killed my entire family that I'm a Christian and Jesus has given me love for you and I forgive you. He didn't know what to do with that kind of love. One thing about agape love, you can't be ambivalent to agape love. I mean, you might, a person may fly out in a, in a rage or they may broke, be broken right there and, and weep and receive Christ, but you can't be you know, neutral or ambivalent when it comes to agape love. If it's really an operation, you're going to get a reaction one way or another. Well, this guy didn't know what to do with this kind of love, but she kept writing him, praying for him. And eventually his heart softened, softened, and he received Christ. And all because of one Christian who, by God's grace, demonstrated agape love to this man who killed her entire family, and this guy got saved and is in heaven, I'm sure now. Uh, I don't think he's still alive. I'm sure he's in heaven by this time. Another story I heard a little more recently about a gangbanger who didn't have really a family. His dad was out of the picture. He grew up on the streets, became a gangbanger. And one day he guns down another young guy. I, I don't know why, if they had words or he wouldn't, the young guy wouldn't join a, uh, the gang or whatever. But this gangbanger shot and killed this young guy. Now the father was a Christian. And when this other, this gangbanger who killed his son was brought to trial. He was there in the courtroom for the whole trial. And this young guy was convicted. And, you know, he wasn't uh, an uh, uh, adult yet. Uh, he was a minor still. And so the judge wasn't really sure what to do. He knew sending him to prison was probably going to be the worst thing that could happen to this kid, make him a more hardened criminal. But as he was pondering what to do, because the verdict came in guilty, the father raised his hand and said, Your Honor, may I address the court? And he said, well, yes, certainly. He says, Your Honor, I know that this young man killed my son, but I'm a Christian. And I know that what he really needs is forgiveness and a home. And I'm asking you to let me adopt him so I, I can take him home. And raised him as my son, which the judge was so floored. He'd never heard anything like that. He granted his request. This dad adopted this kid, raised him in a Christian. The kid finally got saved. I, I forgot what ministry he got involved with, but he went on to serve the Lord in a phenomenal way. 
God's agape love is truly the greatest force to change a life in the universe. Now, when Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, a lot of folks read that and they're like non-Christians who read the word. Even a lot of Christians, when they first read how Jesus tells them to love their enemies, um, they, they, they're, they're taken back. They, they can't comprehend how they could do that. And the reason is our concept of love, human love, our concept of, of human love is rooted in, uh, is rooted in feelings. You know, we read the word that says, love your enemies. We're thinking from a human standpoint. We're drawing from our understanding of human love, which is often rooted in feelings. And so naturally, somebody says, well, how can I love my enemies? In other words, how can I have feelings of love for my enemies? Well, the answer to that is you probably can't, not initially, not right away. But God's love isn't about feelings. Again, I'm not saying that feelings won't be involved in them somewhere down the road. They're just not the motivation that causes us to act initially. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul went on to give us the best description of God's love anywhere in the New Testament. And by the way, he used all verbs. All verbs. Because again, God's love is not feelings, it's actions. And by the way, as we read this, and yes, every time you see the word love, you could substitute Jesus, the name Jesus, and see how it fits beautifully. And then try to substitute your name in place of every time love is mentioned. I've tried it. I almost got sick. I had to stop. It was too repulsive. Phil loves in his kind. Phil overlooks all wrongs. You know, come on. I mean, you know, that, that's Jesus' love. And I want to walk in Jesus' love, but it's not my human love is the idea. Let me read it to you, starting with verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not, and I'll substitute God's love as the idea, agape. God's love does not demand its own way, is not irritable. God's love keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. God's love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is like divine knowledge, like the gift of the word of knowledge is the idea, it will vanish away. But love, God's love, will last forever. Guys, human love often needs to be earned. Human love often needs to be earned, as it's often based on performance, unfortunately. Many parents base their love for their kids on their kids' obedience. So a rebel child is not loved like a very submissive, obedient child in their family. Or they base love on their academic achievements or athletic accomplishments. Maybe they don't even realize they're doing it. Or maybe in their minds, that's how they motivate them to excel even more. I just keep praising them and praising them, right? So a lot of dads do this with, with boys. 
who their fathers, you know, they really were into sports when they were younger. And to have a son who is an athlete, oh, it's just great. Well, maybe he's got two sons and the other son is not an athlete. Maybe that son is more of a creative person. And he likes to play music or write poetry or something to that effect. Now, if a father is not really in tune with God, and of course, earthly fathers are not, many Christian dads aren't either. If you're really in tune with God as a dad, you don't try to fit your sons into the same mold, every one of them. A wise father looks, you, of course, you train them in the ways of God and teach them the word of God. But you don't force them to be anything until you see where their natural inclinations are. What has God gifted them? And if you see they're gifted musicians or artists, that's what you focus on. That's what you try to encourage. So that that gift blossoms within them because obviously that's what God has planted in their heart. And if they are a gifted athlete and that's what they love, go for that. That's fine. But one size doesn't fit all when you're raising kids. And we have to be aware of that. But many children have grown up in homes, and I'm talking about Christian kids, grew up in non-Christian homes, eventually got, grew up and got saved, these kids, but um, where they had to earn their parents' love. And it was performance-based, right? And so now that they've gotten saved, they've brought that mentality into their relationship with God, and they think that they've got to earn God's love. Now, as pastors, we do our best to try to teach them, well, no, God's love is unconditional. You don't have to earn it. It, it just God loves because that's his nature and so on and just receive it but it's hard and they understand that theologically but practically it, it's something that it's hard for them to break free of that they're a slave of that mentality that love is based on performance and so they think they have to earn God's love and this causes many to be driven from God because they try and try, yet they still fail. They, they can't give up certain bad habits. They can't be the kind of people they think God wants them to be immediately. And so God can't love me. How could God love me? I keep failing. I'm a worthless wretch and so on. And you see a lot of Christians who are harboring under a lot of condemnation and guilt, condemnation and guilt that God hasn't put them under. The devil has, but they've been listening to the devil. We have to stop listening to the devil and start listening to what God has said in his word about how much he loves us and how he's proved it by sending his son to die for us and so on. And I tell them, I, you know, I say, well, pastor, how could God love me? I mean, I'm such a failure. Well, the, 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 the reality is he loves you not because of you, but in spite of you. <laughs> that may not comfort a lot of people, Right? Because a lot of people believe God loves me because, come on, who wouldn't love me? I'm, I'm just a lovable guy. I mean, come on. Everyone pretty much loves me, you know. And they think that God loves them because they're lovable. They don't realize God loves them in spite of who they are. And they're not lovable, by the way. None of us are. Because God sees the heart. He sees a lot of sin and garbage in there. But he still loves us. 
invites us to be a member of his family. And when we do accept Christ, he works through the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus. Doesn't happen all at once. And maybe the work won't even be finished before the rapture happens. But on the way up, he'll finish it. But God loves you because he is love. He doesn't love you because you deserve it. He loves you because that's who he is. And that's the whole message of the cross, isn't it? Think about it. That God so loved the world of sinners and failures and losers and reprobates that he sent his only begotten son to die for all of us, all because he loves us. Now, guys, if God commands us to love even our enemies, listen now. How much more should his love be applied to our marriages or to our relationships with our earthly families or Christian brothers and sisters? I think some Christians have an easier time loving their enemies outside the church than their family in Christ in the church or their spouse that they're married to. Look, this is the time of year when we celebrate Jesus coming to the earth, the incarnation, right? Why did Jesus come to the earth? What was the whole purpose of the incarnation? Well, we don't have to guess. Wasn't it Gabriel who appeared to Joseph in a vision who found out Mary was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the father, so he had to assume another young guy and Mary had sex and now she's pregnant and he was going to put her away quietly because he didn't want to bring a lot of attention. He, he loved her and, and all, but he was going to divorce her quietly because they were technically married. Betrothed was, in Jewish cult, uh, customs, culture was, you're technically married. Hadn't been consummated yet, but in God's eyes, you were husband and wife. And so one night when Joseph was pondering all this, the angel appeared to him in a dream and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bear a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sins. In fact, the very name Jesus, which is Greek for Yeshua, means God is salvation. Jesus' very name means God is wants to save us. Well, Jesus came that we might be forgiven all the wrongs that we had done to God. Look, it's, I think it's time for uh, all of you who are harboring uh, hurts and resentments towards others that have wronged you in the past. Some families, they have fought 20 years ago. They don't even remember what exactly the fight was about, but they haven't talked in 20 years. It's time to make amends. For Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. Oh, but what if I try and they refuse to make amends? Then it's not in your hands anymore. As much as is possible and depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It's not always possible, but if you try, God says, okay, you tried. You tried. I see that. You tried your best. It was from your heart. I'm releasing you now from the responsibility of reconciling this relationship. Now it's their fault. Time to make amends with parents or, or parents with kids, ch their children, or with your siblings or a best friend. Now, I don't know this for sure, 
I kind of think it, though, in my heart. When Jesus announced a new commandment for the new covenant, I think maybe a few of his disciples at least might have secretly groaned within themselves. You say, well, why do you say that? Because they knew the law of Moses already contained 613 commandments. Many of them they hadn't even memorized, yet alone were trying to fulfill. And now the Lord wants to add another one? Yippee! Again, the Jewish people, most Jewish people, had given up hope of ever even memorizing all those commandments, let alone keeping them. All those commandments given to them through Moses. And so this gave way to an ongoing debate the scholars of Judaism and leaders of Israel were always having with one another. Think about it. If you can't attain to what in your mind is the, the standard or the, you know, the, 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 the level you have to achieve to please God, what happens is we always try to pull the standard down so that I can at least achieve or fulfill some of it. So they're not going to even be able to memorize 613 commandments. We're probably keeping only a fraction of them. So what do you do? Well, you pull the standard down and say, well, let's just find out what the most important one is. Let's start with that, all right? 613, I can't, I can't get my mind around that. But, but let's start by finding out what is the most important. We can all keep the most important. But we ought to know what that is, right? What is the most important, greatest commandment of them all? So this was an ongoing, running debate. They not just had for a few years, centuries. We see it show up when Jesus was in Jerusalem, and some Pharisees wanted to trip him up with a trick question, but in the process, hear what he had to say about what the greatest commandment was, because I'm sure they were interested. But they were wanting to use it to somehow trip him up because it was a hot-button issue. Whatever he said was, was going to have a tendency to alienate some group, which would have diminished his popularity, right? Which is what the whole game was about. So they came to him in Matthew 22, starting with verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, oh, watch out for them lawyers. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest? And again, that was not a new question. The scribes and Pharisees had been debating it for centuries, and they had determined that there were 613 commandments in the law of Moses. 248 were positive, things that God commanded they were to do, like love, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Love their neighbors as themselves, honor their fathers and mothers, and so on. Then there were 365 negative commandments, things that God had forbidden them from doing, like worshiping false gods, stealing, lying, committing adultery, and so on. But since the average person could never, again, even memorize all those, let alone keep them, these experts, quote-unquote, lawyers are always looking for loopholes. So they set about to comb through the law of God, and as they did, they decided or they divided the law into two groups of commandments. The first group they called heavy 
commandments, or in other words, important commandments. And the other group they called light commandments or unimportant commandments. And they taught, the rabbis did, a person could major on the important commandments, and if they did, they didn't have to worry about the trivial ones. You know, they, 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 they weren't that important. So why should we bother? Can't learn them all? Most people won't memorize them all. Let's just focus on the top ones. And if people, you know, keep the top ones, starting with the greatest, that's all they need to do. That's what they taught. We, we, we see this mentality in our society. How many people have you talked to over the course of your Christian life? Who, who, who said this to you? You know, you start talking about uh, getting to heaven and so on, and, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they believe because they haven't robbed a bank, murdered anybody, or were not a serial rapist or adulterer or adulteress, that that's all God cared about. All the other stuff was trivial stuff. So I lie once in a while. So I take some paper clips and pencil from work. Oh, God doesn't care about that. As long as I focus on the big stuff, God doesn't care if I do this little stuff. Well, the fallacy behind that approach is obvious. As James told, James told us in chapter 2, verse 10 of his epistle, if you were to keep all the commandments of God per, uh, perfectly and then one day broke only one commandment, and he doesn't divide them into heavy and light. One commandment. In God's eyes, you're not, God's eyes, you're now a lawbreaker and you're guilty and on your way to hell. To get into heaven, you have to be sinless. You have to be perfect. Now, of course, what's the reaction people should have when we tell them that? Nobody's perfect. What are you talking about? There's no way I can be perfect. Well, sure there is. Because if you believe in Jesus, his perfection is put to your account and all your sins were laid on his cross. And God marks your account paid in full through the blood of Christ. It is finished, what, John 19, 30? It is finished, the Greek, to tell us die, paid in full. Paid in full. But the question in and of itself was not a bad question. What's the greatest commandment? So Jesus did answer it. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said, Well, the greatest commandment is that you, love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. When he says this is the first, the Greek is not first in chronology. It's the first in supremacy. It's the greatest of them all. Because if you love God with all your... I think it was Augustine who said, okay, look, love God and do whatever you want. What? Yeah, love God, really love God. With agape love, do whatever you want. He knew if you really love God, you're going to not want to dishonor him, hurt him, sin, worship false gods, and so on. You're not going to want to steal from a, a neighbor or any of those other things. But this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and Mark adds strength. This is the greatest commandment. 
And in saying this, Jesus quoted the Shema, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which is the great Jewish statement of faith recited by every Orthodox Jew every morning. The Greek word that Jesus uses for love, that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, soul, is agape. And uh, that is actually the verb form, agapao, but agape, which is a, an unconditional, fervent, passionate love. Most often used of God's love in the New Testament, but not exclusively. Do you realize that? There are some Christians that believe that the word agape was invented to communicate what God's love is all about. That's not true. That's not true. I think it was Luke eleven forty three. Jesus said the Pharisees, they agapaoed the chief seats and greetings in the marketplaces. They say, well, how does that work? Because the word means an all-consuming love. When it's directed at God, that's good. When it's directed at others in need, that's good. When it's directed towards selfish or sinful uh, uh, things, it's bad. The Pharisees were consumed with the love of themselves and others honoring them and the best seats in the synagogue. And when they walked through the marketplaces, people falling all over them. My rabbi, my rabbi, my great one. They loved that. They agaped that. But obviously that wasn't the kind of love we're talking about. When you love God like that, when you love God the way Jesus described, agape love, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the second then greatest commandment will naturally flow out of that love for God, verse 39, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I believe it's impossible to really love God and not, to really agape God and not to love others. And Jesus apparently felt the same way because he quoted Leviticus 19 verse 18 and put it on the same level as the Shema. That you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, this prompted the Pharisee who asked the initial question in the crowd, well, who's my neighbor? The Pharisees, see, here's the thing. The Pharisees taught that only other Pharisees were their neighbors. The Pharisees hated everybody who weren't Pharisees. They would walk through the streets of town with their cloaks pulled tight to their bodies, lest a breeze of wind should cause uh, their robe to flap up and, and brush against some, some you know, sinner, and they'd be defiled. Consequently, the Pharisees hated everybody who wasn't a Pharisee. And they taught they only had to treat other Pharisees with love because, you know, they were their neighbors. So in response to that idea, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you can read on your own this week. I'll just paraphrase it quickly. He said a certain Jew, Jewish person, went down to Jericho, fell among thieves, notorious uh, place of where thieves would hide and, uh, and would attack travelers. And they attacked this guy, beat him almost to death, robbed him, left him on the, on the ground half dead, uh, bleeding and so on. And in the course of time, here comes a priest, Jewish priest, Jewish, Jewish guy laying on the ground. Here comes the Jewish priest, sees him, I don't get involved, walks on the other side of the road, passes the guy by. Not long after that, a Levite came by, another very religious man, saw the guy lying there, again, another Jew, and said, I don't want to get in, but walked on the other side of the street, went his way. In the course of time, a Samaritan came. Now, for Jesus to make a Samaritan the hero of a story, 
Oh my goodness. They were hated by the Jewish people. But this Samaritan sees him lying on the ground, stoops down, bandages up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, wine disinfectant, uh, oil to soothe, bandaged him up, put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn nearby, gave the owner of the inn a shekel, said, look, take care of this guy. Whatever you spend above and beyond what I've given you, when I come back this way next time, I will make up the difference. And Jesus, turning to the lawyer, said, well, who do you think was a neighbor for, to him that fell among the thieves? The Lord had him. Well, I, guess the one who showed him I guess the one who showed him mercy, compassion. That's right. Go and do likewise. Who is our neighbor? Anyone that has a need. How do we meet that need? How do we love them? We meet that need. That's what it's all about. But again, I believe it's impossible to really love God and not love others made in His image at least as much as you love yourself. But then, guys, in the upper room, the night before His crucifixion, Jesus took what He had said earlier in His own ministry was the second greatest commandment, and He elevated it even higher to a place that they had never heard this taught in their life. This was a fresh concept. All their life as Jews, they knew what we call Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. But now Jesus elevates even that teaching to a place they had never thought of before. He tells them, look, no longer is the love of the king. I mean, you're talking about the love of the kingdom of God now. You're members of the kingdom. And it's not good enough to just love others as you love yourself. Now you have to love others as I have loved you, or, or in other words, more than you love yourselves. You've got to die to self. A new commandment, again, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. You can read, we're out of time, but you can read, John re records the words of Jesus here in chapter 13, and then in his first epistle, he expands on that idea. You can read 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18, 1 John 4, verses 7 to 11, where John talks about the kind of love we must demonstrate towards each other is action kind of love. Don't tell me you love somebody who has got no food and no clothing. They're, they're freezing because there's no jacket they have. Oh, but I love you. I hope it works out. I'll pray for you. Christians, we're famous for saying that. Makes us feel good to ourselves that we're not just, you know, oh, I'll pray for you. Well, how about you, you go out and buy the guy a coat? Or, or how about, you know, you, you take the family out and you buy him some groceries? John says, don't say you love in word only, love in deed and in truth. Love like Jesus taught us to love when he went to the cross. As I have loved you, he went to the cross and died. That's the kind of love God wants from his kids. This is new, new covenant love, guys. This is the love of the king manifested in his sons and daughters who are members of his kingdom. This is why James calls this kind of commandment, this kind of love, the royal law, the royal law. 
The royal law is basically the law of the king and his kingdom. A law that governs how the king's kids are to live our lives under the new covenant is the idea. For example, in the Decalogue, also known as the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment is, you shall not steal, right? And so God's commandments tell me that I can't take what belongs to you. That's a law. I can't take what belongs to you. But it can't command me to share with you what belongs to me. Right? God's love does both. If I love you, I'm not going to want to take what belongs to you. And if you have a need, I will even share with you what belongs to me. Because that's what God's love is. It's sacrificial. It's giving. Look, as Christians, we're not under the law of Moses, of course. But we are under an even greater law, the law of love, if I can put it that way. The law of God's kingdom, which commands me to love others as Jesus loved me sacrificially. Again, in John 13, verses 34 and 5, the Greek word is for love is agape. Agape. Look, we're done. Let me just close by saying this. Loving people as God commands with his agape love, listen to me now, is impossible for us. We talked about this new commandment to love, built on a new principle, energized by a new power. We talked about the principle. How about the power? Well, let me just say this. This kind of love that God wants us to show others, that Jesus commanded us to show one another, it goes beyond our ability. It's a supernatural love. A love that only comes from God. I can't fake it. I can't, you know, uh, you know, it, it's a love that I, I don't, I can't make or fake. It's, it's a supernatural love that belongs to God. It's inherent in his nature. God is love. Well, then how could Jesus command us to do something that's impossible for us? Well, it's impossible for us, but it's not impossible for us to do because when we accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit came inside. In Romans 5, verse 5, at that moment, he poured God's love into our hearts. It's there. We don't have to use it. We don't have to draw from it. We're living at a time like I have never seen in my lifetime. I don't think our country has ever seen, except going back to the Civil War days, where the country is so divided and where there's not just a disagreement of ideas, there is a visceral hatred of one group to the other and vice versa. The last thing our country needs at this point in our history is for Christians to jump on the bandwagon and hate the other side as much as they hate us. This is a time more than ever before we have to be walking in the Spirit. We have to be abiding in Christ because that's the only way we're going to show God's love to enemies who literally, if they had their way, would probably imprison all the Christians and might still do some of that. This might be a very interesting year coming up. And how we respond to it is going to determine if it's going to be a year for God to be glorified and people to get saved, or if we're going to just jump in the bandwagon with the world and hate people that disagree with us. 
I'm not sure I can do that. Oh, I'm sure you can't. I can't. That's why we have to draw close to God and let Him live His life through us. That's what it means to let the fruit of the Spirit grow from your life because you're connected to Christ. You're in fellowship with Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit is growing because of that vital living relationship that you have with Christ. And the Holy Spirit in you is working His way out into our lives with the fruit of the Spirit. And love leads the list. We've got to let that love flow. And if it's going to flow, can I encourage you to let it flow towards those of your immediate family who you're at odds with? God won't force us to draw from his agape love. We have to let it flow. This Christmas season, purpose, to draw near the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Remember why he came. He came that we might be forgiven for our sins, the wrongs we had committed against God. Let's remember the parable of the thief that was forgiven billions and billions of dollars in today's economy and then went out and grabbed a fellow servant who owed him, right? This first guy owed the king. In our economy, I forgot what it was. I figured it out one day, a $20 billion in debt. Yet the king forgave him because he asked for mercy, the slave. Goes out and grabs another slave who owed him, you know, it wasn't a small amount, maybe five, 6,000 bucks. But was going to have him thrown into the debtor's prison. When the king found out about it, he rearrested that first slave, threw him in prison until every penny was paid. And Jesus said, so it shall be to everyone who does not forgive their brother from their heart. Pastor, I don't know what that means theologically. I'm not going to go there. You're saved by grace, but I'm not going to go there. That's what Jesus said, and that's how I take it, seriously. And I fear God enough to hold grudges against people or to want to hate anybody because they've wronged me. I fear God because I don't want God coming back on me and saying, well, Phil, you wouldn't forgive them with that little bit that they wronged you, but I forgave you all the mountain of sin and, and death that you owed me. I'm not going there. Better if we just forgive, right? And do it from the heart. So may God give us grace this Christmas season. And may we have the best Christmas we've ever had by embracing Jesus and forgiving those who have wronged us for his sake. And may God give us grace to do it. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down out of your great love and died for sinners. And we ask you, Lord, to work on us, that we would draw close to you, that you would fill us with your agape love, that we would overflow with the Spirit, and that overflowing of the Spirit would spill over onto people's lives that uh, have wronged us, and we would forgive them, and we would go forward. And that, Lord, this would be a year where, you know, we, we just let go of the hurts of the past. Lord, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Give us grace to love others this coming year, especially to forgive them. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.